The poem is You Is Me, written by someone who is anonymous. We are the skin of all peoples, the spirit of all animals, birds, trees, plants, and flowers. We are the earth itself walking about, the sun's morning eyes, the moon's casting glow, the ever-changing mists, the life of the clouds, the waters of the sea, the dolphin's fin. There isn't anything that isn't you or me. As a granule of sand creates the beach, every blade of glass, the meadow, every current and tide, the seas, the heavens rains of joy, the spring fragrance abound, every sound, scent, feeling, every pulse is the planet, is you, is me. Well, that's by way of introducing, um, here I am, first time in four weeks, and I'm going to say it's the last of a series. <laughs> and it's the last of a series that I began before I went away on the tyranny of the mind. Now, of course, if you missed the other ones, and I'm sure some of you, you have done, you can catch up on them on the podcast. There's a, there's a red uh, a card at the back that will show you how to do that. Um, but I, I was doing the series before I went away on the tyranny of the mind. We were thinking of the tyranny of the mind, and we were talking about, really, our rational minds. And I suggested in, that, in the first week of that series that although the mind has brought us many benefits and a large extent helped us to create civilization, I also said that I think a huge part of the world's problems over the last 10,000 years has been down to the tyranny of the mind. Crime, wars, oppression, all forms of hatred and mendacious behavior, ethnic cleansing, murder, rape, injustice, poverty. They're all creations of the mind. And so as we look out, which I think all of us do, and try to create peace in the world, to eradicate poverty, to reduce violence, as we try and do that, I was suggesting the only way you can do that is really to deal with the tyranny of the mind. It's in here. And in the workings in here, that the problems are solved. And I'm not talking about therapy here. You know, that's just a way of making the mind smarter at the choices that it's making. I think, you know, there is a place for the development of the mind, the development of the rational mind. And really, that's what we've been doing for centuries. We've been developing our thinking. But I was suggesting over the last three weeks before I was here that for civilization to develop, it will have to go beyond the machinations of the rational mind. We have to go beyond that into a new sort of consciousness. And in the second week, I suggested that, uh, that for that consciousness to develop, for that new consciousness to develop, we have to be able to train our rational minds. And it was Rowan Williams who said that meditation is a truly revolutionary matter because it takes us to a place where we train our rational minds and we're no longer 
subject to those rational minds, were open to something else, were able to stop the continual to and fro of thoughts dominating our consciousness. And we do that for two reasons, I suggested. One, to discipline the minds so as to be able to control our minds. You know, if you're able to discipline your mind in a, in a, in a practice or in meditation, when it comes to that moment where something kicks off and your mind just wants to kick back, if you're able to control your mind, you can just take that step, that moment to pause. And suddenly you're in control. Suddenly you're not at the effect of your mind rather than your mind controlling you by kicking back. And the second suggestion I said that we need to to train our minds was to be able to access what I was suggesting was that universal consciousness that's at the root of everything. If you're able to just be in the present without your mind just dictating what's going on, then something else can come through. Then if you do sign up to the idea that there is a universality, a universal consciousness, something that can come through, then you can enable that to come through. And in in the last week, in the third week, we looked at how that universal consciousness manifests itself. You know, in Christian terms, we call it the mind of Christ, the greater self, it's called, or the Tao, depending on what culture that you come from. And that loving mind because it is a loving mind, that loving mind that we have access to enables us to have a wisdom that's developed over billions of years. You know, the human race, humanity, is only, you know, comparatively short time it's been developing its memory, its thoughts, but there is a deeper mind that has been there for billions of years that has a fundamental loving outlook that we can access to. And that wisdom that we have access to transforms us into agents of love. We become part of that love if we're able to access it. Because wisdom, that lovely definition, wisdom is knowledge informed by love. Wisdom is knowledge informed by love. And we can become able to operate at a different level of consciousness. And today, what I want to talk about is the effect that that has when we do that collectively. The poem, you know, that I read today contains within it the idea that we are all interdependent with each other, that there is a connection with each other. The heavens rains of joy, the springs fragrant abound, every scent, sound, feeling, every pulse is the planet. All of it is the planet, is you, is me. And that's true not only in terms of the fact that plants need air, air needs the sun, we need plants, you know, we, you know all that connections that you can make. But it's also true in terms of the connection we have with each other through that universal consciousness that we share. Next year as I think I mentioned before, is our 50th anniversary here at the chapel. And we're going to be holding a symposium to celebrate that 50th anniversary on the evolution of consciousness, where we'll be looking at at the role that consciousness has played in evolution. However, the basic premise is that there is a unified consciousness that's driven everything really since the Big Bang. And we are now 
you know, our self-reflective consciousness is the flower of that consciousness. It's, it's come all the way through stocks, rocks, plants, you know, single cell life. There's been a, a movement through that consciousness to manifest itself to the point where we're aware of that of consciousness and we can self-reflect on it. The connection between us all is there whether you acknowledge it or not. And once you enter into the mind of Christ, into that universal mind, through your own awakening to it, then we're acting for that consciousness and for its purposes. By the way, that, that's the purpose of your life. If you want to know what it was, it's open to that and allow that to manifest you as part of itself. In Christian terminology, we become part of the body of Christ. That is what that concept is, the body of Christ. That's where, where it comes from. That's the meaning of it. It's not, it's not Jesus' body, but the entire logos from John, or the word, or the mystical body that is at the center of consciousness that we're talking about. You become part of the body of Christ. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. Also in the Holy Communion, Jesus lifts the bread and says, this is my body, indicating that all things are part of the mystical body of Christ. Not just his body, all things are part of that mystical body. You know, the world's in such a mess at the moment, and it always has been to some extent, because it doesn't realize the connection between things. It doesn't see the nature of things, that there is an interconnectedness. It sees separation. The mind, in its desire to survive, sees itself as being separate from all things and therefore must fight all things. So instead, we have a series of rational minds competing against each other for supremacy. That's true in our families, in our communities, certainly true in international politics. Rational minds wandering around the planet trying to compete with each other for supremacy. But as more people enter into that universal mind, so the level of consciousness of all humanity is raised to a new understanding. You know, our little movement that we make in ourselves does make a difference because it's connected. You know, as that universal consciousness does develop, you know, it says in the Bible, a new heaven and a new earth is created, it says in Revelation. The end point of that realization is what Christian terminology calls the second coming. <coughs> that is the end point of the manifestation of consciousness. It's the moment where all consciousness, rec all consciousness recognizes itself in itself. I recognize myself in Nancy, Nancy recognizes herself as me, as part of that universal consciousness. That is really an all consciousness recognizes itself. That is the moment of the second coming. The moment it is the aha of global recognition, of the universal mind recognizing itself in all particularity. It is the great aha. That's what we should call second. The great aha. Well, I could create a cult on that, couldn't I? We're waiting for the great aha. It is that moment. It is the great aha. But we're a long way from that, I think. My mind thinks we're a long way from that. The idea is that we're all part of a greater whole. That's what, that's what I'm really suggesting here. 
We're participating in our lives, all of us, in a greater whole. Something that's infinitely bigger than us. We're participating within that. And I think, you know, modern science is definitely coming to that view as well, that we are part of a greater whole. Yeah, in the old days, science was always looking for the smallest particle. We still want to find, you know, the God particle. We're still looking for the smallest particle. And that was to find really what was behind everything. That's what science has been trying to do, all based on the idea formulated by Aristotle, the idea of substance. That's based on the idea of substance. And substance, the idea of substance is that the world is made of things. In later science, we came up with different things, atoms. You know, the world is made of things. And all of that idea of substance leads us to thinking about ourselves as being important in the spiritual life. We are the thing that is fallen. We need to get better. We are things that have fallen and things that need to be saved. The idea of substance says we need to make ourselves better people, holier people, purer people. We must work to improve this atom of being so that it will continue to contribute to make other atoms of being better. That's, that's the idea of substance. And it's so ingrained in our minds and in, in consciousness. It's very difficult even to talk, you know, to talk about it and suggest that it might not be the essence of things. But quantum physics, quantum physics acknowledges that it is not about substance. It is about relationship. It is not about substance. It is about relationship. 90% of the entire universe is, in fact, space. This lectern is 90% space. Although you wouldn't know it. It is. It's 90% space. I am 90% space. Space is 90% space. And this means that the power or the causational aspect of life does not lie in the particles that exist. It lies, and this is the key thing, it lies in the relationship between the particles. It is a relational matter. Quantum physics says that atoms are not isolated particles with their own discrete integrity. It says that, in fact, the very act of looking at an atom, the very act of me looking at Sarah will affect her. The very act of looking at an atom will affect it. They tried to measure you all know, it's the place of electrons they went, that went around the atoms. They found they couldn't predict it, where those electrons would be. And Heisenberg's uncertainty principle showed that the reason for this was that when you looked at something, you shone a light onto it, and this changes the position of the electrons. So the very fact of relating to something actually affects the thing itself. It's the relationship. The pattern of causality in the world comes out of the relationship between things. And you can see why the idea of monotheism is so important. You know, the idea of one God or one divine principle, one conscious, it suggests one organizing principle. And that organizing principle functions through relationality. 
And you can see that, you know, as we edge, you know, it begins to edge towards that concept of the body of Christ that Paul is so keen on. This principle of rationality is reflected in how we see God. Now, I put an icon on your service sheet. If you want to have a look at that, the service sheet there, that is the, that is the Rublev's, Andrei Rublev's icon of the portrait of the, of the Trinity. And this is a relational picture. It is, it is known as God in community. And the way you look at it, the hands, the Father is emptying himself out to the Son, the Son is emptying himself out to the Spirit, the, the Spirit comes around and empties himself out to the Son, so the, to the Father. So the whole thing of the Trinity in this particular picture, in the way that it's represented, is about relationality. And if you look at the table there, you'll see there's a bowl of fruit on the table, and just below the bowl of fruit, you can see there's a little square there. Now, often in olden times, what they would do is they put a mirror on that square. And that was to suggest that we looking at the Trinity are actually a part of that Trinity. That we are, in being sons of God, we, in giving ourselves out, are a very part of that Trinity. And, and that it is a function of relationality. In fact, you know, that is what Jesus came to teach. He came to teach that we are all sons and daughters of God, that the Father gives out to us, we give out to the Spirit, we let ourselves go in that relationality. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are all at the table. And that relationship is defined as love, the self-giving of one to another, the interdependence between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And our role in life is to assume a part of the Trinity, to assume the sonship role of the Trinity. And in doing that, we find out who we really are in God. The pattern of life is that self-giving. And science is now acknowledging that it is the relationship between things that is more interesting than the things themselves. It is the relationship that's more interesting. Jesus' life was about that pattern. It was a life poured out to others. Our tendency in life, and especially in our spiritual life, is to concentrate on ourselves. You know, we're interested in, you know, how is our practice going, what's going on,